Does Joe Biden really believe we are in a crisis of democracy? Educators gone wild, teacher strikes across America. John Fetterman, is he fit for office? And is it a legitimate campaign issue in Pennsylvania? And Mar-a-Lago documents, it's all that and more tonight on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. All right. Thanks for joining us on Flyover Country. I am the aforementioned Scott Jennings. Joe Arnold, our normal roundtable host, has the week off. He has returned to Alaska to go on a cruise. This is his second Alaskan cruise of the year, by the way, (laughs) which I find, which I actually think he has spent more time in Alaska this year than Sarah Palin had before she went to Congress up there. Sean is cheering Joe's absence right now. It doesn't seem very nice. I would do that. I mean, I I do feel bad for Joe's dad, who he is now locked down in a room somewhere off the coast of Alaska to interrogate him and pepper him with questions where he can't get away from from Joe. We, yes, we have to get an update from Joe next week because uh, he he did take his father on this cruise and he was going to interview his father for two hours every single day of this cruise because he's like creating a a like a documentary like a family record uh and he's and he's which is not a bad idea which is not a bad idea joe's a pretty good documentarian yeah he is he is once you get past the weird questions i'll take your word (laughs) i'm anxious to see how this goes or i'm also anxious to see if joe's dad threw him overboard (laughs) off the side of the ship and if they ever went if they went back for him or they just kept going that's just another chapter in the story Here's what I'm worried right. about is Joe's lot watching a lot of Russia today and getting pretty close. <laughs> True. To I mean, I don't, I don't know. Are maybe, we really sure he's in Alaska? Is he, or maybe he's passing some packages. I don't well, know. He's not he's not in Alaska, but he can certainly see it from his front porch. Right. <laughs> let's uh, let's get on with the show tonight. You've heard the voices of Kevin Grout, Sean Souther, Jared Crawford is here. And uh, we got boy, since the last time we gathered I feel like a lot of stuff is going on. I feel like the beginning of September, the traditional beginning of the the midterm kickoff season has brought with it lots of news. Let's start, gentlemen, with the president of the United States, Joe Biden. Last week, since we last spoke, uh, gave a speech. I believe he used the movie set that they used in the Star Wars movies when Darth (laughs) Vader is at the castle on Mustafar. He went and gave this uh, speech. He used the Marines. Uh, he, he lit up Independence Hall in red. He clenched his fists. He declared half the country is a danger to democracy. And, he, and his message was essentially this. If you do not vote for the Democrat Party, America ceases to exist. That was sort of his message last week. And we've had a lot of uh, debate and discussion about that, uh, about that speech since last week, uh, it has occupied our uh, our public affairs conversation in this country. I'll start with you, Sean Southern. Impressions of Joe Biden last week, and is it a good political tactic for him to be painting the opposition party as enemies of democracy? Sean, well, I think it's it's not a good political tactic. I think you know it, it does get some people to uh, go after him and maybe overreact in some ways, but it he, it completely violates what he campaigned on as a unifier. And uh, I mean, my major problem with it, Scott, you know, I'm, I'm kind of have a weird opinion about, you know, the Sith and the Empire is that he came <laughs> out here looking looking like, you know, the, the good guy. 
uh, dressed up in red, and I mean, I just, I really hate that. I really, really hated that. <laughs> Kevin Grout, what were your impressions of the speech? And and let me ask a, a, a secondary question. After having ruminated on it for a few days, has your opinion changed, or was your gut reaction still where you are? Yeah, right I spent now? a lot of time ruminating. Um, so I actually read the speech, read the transcript of the speech before I watched it, and the text of the speech you know, wasn't all that shocking. It's the same kind of bullcrap you've been hearing from the talking heads on MSNBC that democracy is falling apart. This is the pinnacle moment. This is the number one issue. You know, a thing that really resonates in, in green rooms that Scott hangs out in, but outside in real America, uh, not quite so much. But then it's the, the imagery that went with it. Scott kind of described it, the the glaring red, the really evil evil look and you know he just looks so angry in all of the photos it was it was really jarring and shocking and and for a president who you know let's be honest has has somewhat of a record to run on he has a couple of accomplishments you know nothing major but he has a couple he didn't even mention them he didn't even mention the student loan relief which was supposed to be you know him buying off all of these these votes in the midterms it was something that didn't even come up he just went full on divisive full on calling Republicans enemy of the people and um, just very, very angry. I don't know how you come back and pretend to be a unifier after that. Well, he, he mentioned very little in the way of, of top issues. You know, he didn't really talk about inflation. You know, briefly mentioned the inflation economy, doesn't exist of, when you're angry red man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, border crisis, uh, crime I and mean, quality of life. I mean, that, that, that really is a secondary set of issues. That's one thing, Jared, that has struck me about, the polling that's come out on the midterms lately. And it's that Republicans and conservatives, and I think even independents care about one set of issues, inflation, the economy, crime, schools, you know, that that sort of issue box. And then you have partisan Democrats who care about a totally different set of issues, whether it's climate change or gun control or uh, this democracy uh, bit that, that Biden is doing. And so, you know, when you think about, when you think about, uh, messages in a campaign you know what a republican campaign is going to be doing and what a democrat campaign is going to be doing are two totally separate things you have two ships out passing each other in the night on the ocean somewhere and they're competing obviously in november but they but they really aren't competing with each other you know they're they're not engaged in persuasion they're engaged in trying to talk to a specific audience about a specific set of issues that's different than the other audience and the other issues and i um, that's why I think that's what makes this campaign kind of unusual, Jared. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think. Look, Yuval Levin, who is one of you know maybe the top five conservative thinkers, you know, and or conservative academics right now, has written a lot about like our institutions, right? Sort of what Biden has is sort of in a way alluding to, and, and loss in, of trust in institutions, and how important these institutions are. So on, on kind of a surface level, you could see how maybe Biden's speech could be an appeal to like a moderate voter. And then all of a sudden it becomes, well, if you disagree with me on on climate change, you're actually a semi-fascist, right? And it becomes this actually very partisan speech. That's to me where he really loses the, the sort of messaging battle here is, is I think there are people who are worried about our institutions, who have concerns about voting and democracy and some of those more kind of high level things. But then it becomes, well, yeah, but if you disagree with me on how to reform or save Social Security, you're actually a MAGA. What is it? Ultra, ultra MAGA. MAGA. You know, ultra well, MAGA you, semi-fascist. To, it sounds like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. To, to, to your point, you know, in the speech, he, so a couple of things. Number one, he, he was trying to just, uh, draw a distinction between 
what he, I guess, believes are good Republicans and bad Republicans. Yeah. And the Republicans he claims he can work with and the Republicans who are bad and actually a threat to the country. Then he went on to define uh, what the bad Republicans are, people who are pro-life. Those are the bad ones. I can't <laughs> with them. Uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, he's done this before, to your point, Jared. You know, a few months ago when the Democrats were trying to federalize our entire election system, which is a terrible idea, by the way. And he gives this speech in Atlanta and he mm-hmm. says, if you don't vote for my bill, you're either Jefferson Davis or Bull Connor. Mm-hmm. Now, that A, that's extremely divisive. And B, it, it, it indicates something inside of him that is he's got a quick trigger. He's got a thin skin. You know, he, he he's not he is he is not the unifier or the magnanimous or the deal maker that he claims to be. He in fact is a bit of an autocrat. You know, he 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 likes the idea of of uh, of being a dictator and presenting America as a you know you're either with me or you might as well be uh, trying to destroy the country and and people can have honest disagreements about a lot of different policy without going to that ex- extreme but he does it he does it all the time Sean I don't know uh what you think about this but I've been trying to decide trying to sort of suss out in his mind what is the difference between a MAGA Republican and a Republican because 92 percent of Republicans voted for Donald Trump in the last two elections and and to hear Biden tell it, you either have to vote for him or vote for Democrats, or you prefer that the country be essentially done away with as we know it. And I, I just, I don't know. I, to me, it is so easy to see how wrong that is. But I guess that's what his people want to hear. I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, as Republicans, we are certainly not looking to Joe Biden to tell us what are good and bad <laughs> Republicans. I mean, honestly, his view of things is so skewed that he's probably like really confused about where he is on any given day of the week, let alone what is a good group of Republicans or a bad group of Republicans. The thing that I can't get over about the speech is just the pure optics of it. And had Donald Trump done mm. what Joe Biden did the other night, I mean, people would have gone apoplectic and lit their hair on fire. And, oh, yeah. And th- th- the hypocrisy of this really bugs me yeah and and on top of that on top of that when you consider that thursday night we listened to biden's speech and then friday morning we woke up and were treated to the news that chuck schumer the senate majority leader democrat has his super PAC in new hampshire spending now i'm told by operatives up there upwards of four million dollars trying to get the most ultra mega quote unquote candidate the nomination in that uh, primary up there. So you've got Biden on Thursday night telling us that Ultra MAGA is going to destroy the country. And Friday morning, we find out Chuck Schumer is desperately trying to prop up Ultra MAGA in New Hampshire, which is what they did in Maryland and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Colorado and place after place after place. And so if you're Joe Biden and you are the head of the Democratic Party and you want people to take you seriously, Kevin, you might think that you would have sent a memo <laughs> to the rest of the party saying, hey, FYI, I'm going to be running our whole fall election on the idea of stamping out Ultra Mega. If you could stop spending 40 or $50 million on it, that would be amazing. I don't know. Um, I mean, if you read any of the mainstream reporting, Democrats are doing great. Every day from you know the dailies like Punchbowl or Playbook, 
all, all you see is Democrats are on the rise. Biden's approval rating is getting better. It's gone from 38 to 39 and Republicans are getting worse. Gas prices are down. Democrats are obviously going to win. So if I were Joe Biden and seeing this, I'd say, yeah, let's keep doing it. Four million is not enough, Chuck. Throw another million dollars up in New Hampshire. A couple, a couple of, uh, I was looking at a poll uh, from a couple of days ago, CBS News poll. Do you consider yourself part of the MAGA movement? Overall, voters said 19% yes, 54% no, which tells me a whole bunch had no idea what that is. <laughs> Interestingly, among Democrats, 73% no, 7% yes. Among wow. Republicans, 45% yes, 28% no. So it's interesting. Uh, um, I, I don't know. I just I, – I, people are going to the grocery store and taking a beating. Yes, gas prices are down, but food prices – are still outrageous. Cost of living outside of gas is is really bad right now. And I, I don't know, as a political strategy, and again, you know, what I said at the top of the show, notwithstanding about what they think their voters want to hear, independents, independents are still quite worried about inflation and the economy and their overall economic situation. And, and to sort of ignore all that, and not just ignore it, but kind of laugh in their face. I mean, they, they, they did, after all, pass a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act, which had nothing to do whatsoever with inflation. I mean, so it's they kind of mock the people who are worried about it. I, I don't know, Jared, Sean, it seems kind of, it just keeps, seems kind of, uh, it's either way overconfident or extremely short-sighted. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure which. Yeah, and, and to add to the sort of hypocrisy of it, uh, you talk about independence too. I mean, you know what's important to democracy? You know what's important to our institutions? The legislative process, which he just completely skipped over to do this student loan debt thing. You know, I mean, it's just like, it, I don't know where he, he thinks he's like this institutionalist who's, you know, fighting for the average person and doing all these things when he gets up there. I mean, the actions obviously speak louder than words. And again, it's just so clear that their priorities are in the wrong place. They don't really know how to, uh, you know, approach these midterms. I, I, their, their best case is that, you know, they, that, you know, people get sort of afraid of this kind of ultra mag or whatever that they've this boogeyman that they've created. I I don't look, I work in politics every day. I don't even know like what the ultra mag of people believe or are. I mean, well, well Scott pointed to it. You know, if you're pro life, you're, you're ultra mag. Yeah. ultra maga. If you yeah. uh, believe in low taxes, you're ultra maga. If you believe that you know the constitutional process should be respected on student a strong loans. border, back the blue, any of these you know traditional Republican ideas. These are all ultra maga <laughs> policies. Exactly. I mean, the only Republican Joe Biden likes is one that walks like a Democrat, quacks like a Democrat. And votes Democrat, right. which is not well, a Republican. Know, just to, I'm going to wrap up here, and then I'm going to ask you guys a question about this topic as we as we come out of it. it. It is interesting because it wasn't just that Biden was attacking Trump; he was dividing up the Republicans, and he went so far as to say there is a group of Republicans I can work with. And I assume what he means are the people who voted for, say, the infrastructure bill or the chips bill or what you know, whatever. So, so. In his mind, at least in his rhetoric, his mind has it that there is a group of Republicans that he can work with. Now, presumably, presumably, in the New Hampshire Senate race, there's a there's a candidate up there that Joe Biden would probably define, I would think, as someone he could work with. Peter Meyer in Michigan, the congressman. I'm assuming he's the kind of Republican that Joe Biden would say, well, I, I could work with him. Joe O'Day in Colorado. I'm assuming compared to the alternatives in that primary, he would have said, yes, that's somebody I can work with. Yet, 
it's the Democratic Party that has gone around trying to stamp out every single Republican that Joe Biden, as I understand it, believes he could work with. And so what I'm left to what I am left to conclude is that what Biden really believes is this. There should be uniparty control. Mm -hmm. There should not really be any Republicans because he's having his political apparatus try to defeat all the supposed good ones. And he's asking everybody to vote against all the bad ones. So so essentially, our democracy will cease to exist in the mind of Joe Biden if anybody votes Republican or if any Republicans win elections come November. And that, to me, is a twisted way to look at it. Before we move on, quick question for you guys as we head out of this topic. Sean, will we see Democrats in October running ads and making the democracy agenda, quote unquote, of Joe Biden their top issue? Or will we see them revert to inflation and the economy. They'll focus on this quote-unquote MAGA democracy issue. They have no interest in talking about inflation and the problems that are actually affecting everyday Americans. Jared Crawford, what do you think? I think there'll be a couple of sensible Democrats that will lean into the inflation stuff, but I think largely they're just going to stick the ultra-MAGA out there as the boogeyman and try to run on it. Kevin Grout. I think it's going to be up there. Uh, I think they're all going to throw their money in on abortion too. Um, I, yeah. The numbers are on that one horizon. I think they're going to completely ignore inflation. I think uh, – I, I will take the contrarian view here. I think by the time October rolls around and these campaigns really settle in, especially in the states like Nevada, Colorado, New Hampshire, Georgia, I don't think Democrats will be able to ignore inflation in the economy as it becomes clear that the independent voters need to hear something to give you even – uh, the possibility of their vote come November. All right, moving on. Next topic, the first day of school in Seattle, delayed as educators there have gone on strike. Uh, they authorized a strike after months of failed negotiations between the public schools in Seattle and the teachers' union. Uh, this follows another strike in Columbus, Ohio, mm -hmm. where teachers also delayed the beginning of school there guys what are these so so let me just make sure i understand what's happening here teachers unions kept the schools in this country closed for the better part of two years which we now know from the test scores has set back america's school children by years and years and if you are poor and if you are minority even further i mean the loss of learning the loss of life uh, earnings, the, the, the loss of quality of life. We'll never be able to, to measure what the teachers unions did to our kids. So they've already succeeded in, in destroying uh, a generation's worth of, of knowledge and ability and learning. So that's number one. And now they're delaying school even more in some of the biggest school districts in America. Sean, what do you make of all this? I, I think it's really sad like, because, as you've already pointed out, the New York Times uh, reported last week this huge drop in math and uh, and reading uh, for, the I believe, the first time in something like 30 or 40 years, uh, something like that. Uh, mm. Jared, you'll have to check me on that. Uh, but it, it, it does seem to me that it's, it's we're coming out of a global pandemic. The number one thing that people who go into the classroom care about I'm told, or the, their their kids, their students, and uh, this this sort of behavior where we're now hanging these kids out to dry is just really unfortunate. And, and here, Scott in Louisville, we still have a mask mandate 
uh, for our, uh, our the biggest school district in in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And and I was driving to work the other day, and I see these kids on a bus, all separated out, all wearing masks. And we know that's going to continue to contribute to this decline in learning. Uh, it's well documented, and so um, it, it it's very very sad to see this. Kevin, yeah. what do you think? Teachers unions have totally missed the mark here. Uh, and, and, and this is – I think it's important to make the dif- difference between union leadership that is just completely lost and you know your average teacher, love teachers. But these unions just are totally misreading how fired up parents are, how much they want their kids in the classroom just to make up some of this learning loss. Um, and then they're out there closing some of the biggest school districts in the country. Up in Minneapolis, the, the union is pushing for a, a, port, a part of their contract – to put it in the contract that if the school or the district has to lay off teachers, they have to lay off the white teachers first. This is the kind of stuff the unions care about, not educating our kids. Uh, I mean, and then the National Teacher Union's Randy Whitegarden has the gall to go out there and say, oh, we were actually the ones who led the reopening of schools last uh, last year. It's just absolutely disgusting, like you said. And, I mean, the, the statistics on it that I'm sure Jared knows far better than me are – are just totally uh, mind-boggling and they're out there saying there's a teacher shortage when really there's just all these new positions and they're filled with money. Teachers unions are just totally missing the mark here. Get back in the classroom. Get the schools back open. And here's a question. You, you said parents are angry about this. I agree with you. I certainly am. I've got four kids in various states of school. Uh, I know a lot of a lot of parents are, are really upset about – I mean, it's it, the thing is at this point, if, if you're a parent who's got – a student, you know, somewhere between first and, and eighth grade. I mean, it's 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 now become readily apparent uh, whether or not your child has suffered a little bit, a moderate amount, or a lot of learning loss and, and skill loss on on reading and math. We're certainly dealing with it in my household at, at varying levels. And 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 I'm and I'm pretty angry. Uh, I was, of course, I was angry while it was going on. I mean, we were the only country in the Western world that closed the schools. Europe never closes schools. Uh, of course, we're also the only country in the Western world that allows the teachers unions to tell the supposed medical science, whatever community, what to do. But but whatever. Here's my question. It manifested itself in the Virginia governor's race last right. year and helped Glenn Youngkin get elected governor. Do we think there is a groundswell of angry parents out there who are fixing to teach Democrats a lesson and it's just not showing up in the polling? Kevin and Sean, what do you guys think? And Jared? I bet it didn't show up in polling over the summer because schools were out. But I think now that schools are back in session, administrations, school boards, teachers unions are going to start doing some some wacky stuff, and it's going to rise back to the top of the list. Yeah, Jared, you, you do you, you do a lot of work in sort of this this policy space, and you've done a lot of work on the on the education space. I mean, what's your what's your gut instinct? But I'm particularly interested in, in the political piece because. The only way these things ever change is if voters go out and teach somebody a lesson. Yeah, it, it's been a lot of buildup uh, over the last couple of years. First, Scott, you, you mentioned this too. The United States was an outlier here. Most most countries were, were full-time back in school in fall of 2022. Or excuse me, fall of 2020. We're now in 2022. Kids here in JCPS are, are, are still masked up riding the bus to school, you know, outside waiting for the bus when I drive into work every morning. I think and I hope really that parents are not going to forget everything that has happened and continues to happen, right? That's the that's the key here is that it, let's say they had a few bad years, nobody really knew what was going on, there was so much to to try to take in. I mean, we're we're still thinking back to state troopers going to churches on Easter, do we still remember all this? 
But I think, uh, along with the things around critical race theory and curriculum, these closures, the masks, and now more sick outs and strikes, I, I think come November, parents are going to continue to to go to the polls and say we have had enough of this this is this was not short term this was not lack of information you have gotten more money i mean they have been these schools are flush with cash from this federal money and they they wasted it some of them wasted they they created more bloat they created football stadiums i mean parents are going to be fed up about everything there is not a positive that schools have done in the last two years, frankly. And I think come November, because this is still going on, you are going to see parents get to the polls and vote in some more pro-choice or more pro-school choice. (laughs) Careful there. More pro-school choice type candidates. I think you're going to see candidates that embrace more traditional curriculum. I mean, I I think it's going to be a wake-up call come November. Sean, Sean, do you think this is purely a local voting issue, or do you think this issue can be federalized? Will we see it manifest itself in congressional and Senate campaigns as well? You know, you kind of read my mind there, Scott. My mind was going automatically to, I think that it will manifest itself, but I think the place where we'll see it manifested most is in the school board races across Mm -hmm. uh, the country. I know that particularly here in Louisville, there's a lot of attention being paid to those uh, school board elections going on uh, here. Uh, I think that it can uh, be an effective tool for some candidates at the congressional and uh, Senate level, depending upon uh, what, where you are and how you talk about it. And you have to you have to talk about it in the right way. You have to package all of these things together uh, when it's about curriculum, when it's about the uh, you know the closing down of schools. Uh, it's about what what whether or not you know boys and girls should compete mm-hmm. against each other yeah. in sports. I think that. All of that packaged together, it, it it could it could be part of an effective uh, messaging tool for a candidate. But I think that uh, you're probably going to see it first uh, manifest itself more on a, a local level before you do on a, a congressional. You skipped level. a level there, and that's in governors' races. And you know, yeah. Doug Ducey in Arizona just signed in the yeah, right. most yeah. expansive school choice program in the country. Almost nine thousand families have already signed up for it, and it's been a couple of weeks. Right. I think uh, Ducey and in uh, Texas and in Florida, they're having a race to see who can be the most school choice pr- state. Yeah, well, I, yeah, and I was answering his specific question about. about well, then you specific, then you brought up the local election and you just skip some. But, but <laughs> I think I think that you're right. Is that I think particularly in a lot of states there will be you know governors will have to answer for for their uh, their decisions yep. that they made uh, regarding education during the pandemic. And I think that there are a number of candidates, especially here in Kentucky, that are looking forward to that conversation mm-hmm. in the next year. All right, great discussion on the education issues, guys. My view is that governor's races, I do think you're going to see uh, this have some impact there. State legislative races around the country. Certainly, Sean, I agree with you on school board. If it were me, and I'm running a Republican campaign, though, even at the federal level, I think I would wrap it into the overall quality of life issue here. And that is, you know, which political party prioritized your kids? When push came to shove, which political party prioritized your kids? And which political party prioritized the money they get from the powerful teachers union bosses? All right, moving on. Let's go over to the Keystone State, a hot topic in politics right now. Pennsylvania, one of the biggest Senate races in the country. This is where Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz is taking on Democrat Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman to replace Pat Toomey and It feels like, finally, after several months of everybody just kind of ignoring it, 
that the topic of John Fetterman, the Democrats' health, has finally burst out into the open as a legitimate topic. There is a great piece, uh, Jerry, we could put this in the show notes, but there's a great piece in the Washington Examiner by Selena Zito, who is a uh, Pennsylvania-based reporter. I believe it came out on uh, Tuesday. Uh, really kind of describing what has happened to John Fetterman. He got the Democratic nomination for Senate. He had a stroke and then spent the last few months just kind of uh, his campaign just been kind of posting memes and doing weird Internet stuff. And this guy's barely been seen in public. And the couple of speeches he's given have been very rough. He obviously is having a, a very difficult time. There's been a lot of conversation about whether he's able to debate Mehmet Oz, uh, we're recording this podcast on Wednesday evening around 8.30, and just before we started, uh, there is some traffic indicating that Fetterman says he will debate Oz, but it'll be in mid to late October. It's very nonspecific. Paint, you know, uh, put me down as dubious about that <laughs> at the moment. But, but, the real, but the real question here is, um, is, it, is it fair game to talk about Fetterman's health. I mean, that's kind of the question that that the media and political analysts are sort of asking right now. Kevin, what do you think? I mean, I I sort of think that Fetterman. I think there'd be less skepticism of Fetterman today if his campaign hadn't been so evasive, dodgy, right. and, and really dishonest. I mean, at one point, his campaign said it's a bump in the road, mm-hmm. and then Fetterman a few months later says I almost died. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now, now, if you listen to him now, it's obvious that he had a major health impact. What do you view? And, and I, I think he said he has a history of not taking the prescribed medication from his doctor and just making a lot of really poor health decisions that have led us to where it is today. Uh, the most persuasive argument I heard on this came from the current senator from Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey, who, you know, I think he and Dr. Oz probably come from different parts of the Republican Party, but he came out and he said, listen, being a senator is a tough job. You got to be in Washington a lot. You got to travel around your state a lot. It takes a lot of endurance and stamina, especially to do the job well. And I, he, he called it into question. He says, I know how much the job takes. And from what I'm seeing from Fetterman, I don't know if he does. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, he can't but he needs to come out and show it and part of the campaign is showing that you 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 know can shake it enough and you can get out there and you can do the job of being a senator and vigorously representing your people um so so when, when he made asked that question that really i think brought the whole question and the, the whole um health issue into focus it's interesting sean this campaign it's like the seinfeld of campaigns like it's a <laughs> campaign about nothing right now because you've had You've had Fetterman's campaign trying to put Oz on the defensive about being from New Jersey or Turkey or whatever. And then you've now you've got Oz trying to put Fetterman on the defense about his health and Kenny X. No one's having any debate about any of the massive right. issues facing our country <laughs> right now. And uh, and I, I just I don't know. I wonder how Pennsylvania voters are going to take a campaign like that. I mean, a lot of most other campaigns in America right now are about, you know, what are you going to do about inflation? How do you feel about, you know, uh, uh the abortion uh, ruling. How do you feel about our national security? What are you going to do about the border crime? I mean, there's real issue debates right. going on. And in Pennsylvania, uh, it's very, very personal and has very little to do with the, with the actual issues uh, that the next Congress is going to face, Sean. There, there's really no discussion about the contrast, c- contrasting visions that either of these two ca- candidates have for the future of the country. It's, it's, it's very, it's an interesting race. Uh, and I think that I think that Fetterman kind of owes it to the people of Pennsylvania to to stand at a debate and answer some questions. Uh, I I think Oz does too. I think that's something that 
every candidate running for office should should do. Uh, it strikes me. It strikes me that the issue that he needs to be questioned on the most, Sean, is crime. Yes. Because yeah. I, I have yeah. I have seen some research on Fetterman, and, and Fetterman's uh, campaign has put up I think three ads trying to punch back on this. But there has been a little bit of discussion about Fetterman's previous statements on releasing violent criminals from jail, right. ending ending a mandatory life sentences without possibility of parole. Uh, some of his personnel practices on his campaign. He's even, he's even had some some people in there that uh, that have uh, sorted past. Right. And so it strikes me that if I were Oz, that's what I I think that's where I'd probably take this. It, I, I just this crime issue, particularly in a state that contains the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. <laughs> this this ought to be resonant, and they've got Fetterman really pretty plainly on the record about it, Sean. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think that it's it's not just that Fetterman doesn't want to answer questions from Dr. Oz about it. It doesn't seem to me that he wants to answer questions from anyone, including the press, about these things. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's living in a very controlled environment. He goes out and he gives a speech and he walks immediately off the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, he's not he's not being engaged with the voters or the press in any s- substantial way. And I think it, it kind of like seems he's dodging some of these these issues as as a result of of his his health uh, incident. It so reminds me of Joe Biden's 2020 campaign from a basement where you never saw him and he never really did anything. And then we got this president who no one thinks is, you know, up to the job. Right. It's even almost worse than that, though, because there's a certain level of unseriousness to Fetterman's campaign, too. I mean, the two biggest things he's done the last couple of months was he got a cameo from Snooki. Which I don't even know how many of our listeners are going to know the words that just came out of my mouth. So, somebody ask Joe Arnold when he's back if he knows who Snooki is. Snooki is, or what a cameo is. And he blasted Oz for like a like a year old video for getting like a charcuterie board, like a, or whatever. It was. No, it was crudite. Crudite, crudite. If you can't if you can't tell the difference between meats and cheeses and veggies, Jared, <laughs> I don't even ignorant know swine. But, but I, I mean, to, to the point of like Fetterman. You know, it acts like he's like you know this sort of regular guy who would care about you know the 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 cost of food and inflation and jobs and all these things. And then it's like, yeah, I'm hanging out with Snooky. On it's just there's a certain level of unseriousness too. And so I think that sort of calls into question, you know, who's driving the ship here, who's sort of behind these things. And then it calls into question his seriousness of the campaign. And then that brings in his health. I mean, and again, I. It, it doesn't have to be said, but of course, all of us don't want him. Like we don't wish ill on him, but there's a certain level of unseriousness going on too that that makes me question kind of who's driving the ship over. He there. he just they just seem cagey about the whole entire topic, and you know it reminds yeah. me of of several years ago whenever Mark Kirk, uh, the senator yeah. from Illinois, suffered a stroke. They were all very transparent and public with mm-hmm. talking about what happened, and he went on to serve for for several years afterwards. Uh, and it just it just seems very different with how he, they are being so cagey about this and not wanting to put him out there. And I understand, like, strokes are serious things. It does take time to recover. Uh, but I st- do think that, you know, there is an election upcoming, and you have to be able to answer questions about what your vision is for the future of the country. And then these things are choices. And uh, to, to try to not allow the, the voters of Pennsylvania uh, to, to know what you think or to, to answer for the things that you've said in the past, I think is a real shame in this country. Yeah, it, I guess the voters in Pennsylvania are ultimately going to have to decide, are they looking for a senator who is going to be an active participant in 
whatever it is you think a senator does, whether it's make speeches or engage in committee hearings and, you know, run around Capitol Hill, constituent services, travel to state, you know, all the things you would think of, or do you just want them to be essentially a, a, a rubber stamp for whatever conference they serve in? And that's what, let's be candid. That's what Fetterman is going to do. He's really liberal. Mm-hmm. He's extremely liberal on criminal justice issues. He's got the main Democrat position on abortion, which is there are no limits. You can have abortion anytime, any place, for any reason. Uh, he has said some very, very fringy things about a number of topics, which is, is, is where most of his party is. Do the people of Pennsylvania want a rubber stamp for that agenda, or do they want a senator who's going to you know, do senator stuff beyond just cast the votes that their party wants them to cast? Any other uh, – kick it open to you guys. Any other uh, Senate uh, news going on out there? I've been kind of tracking uh, – uh, some of this back and forth over Arizona and Ohio and Peter Thiel, the big donor who had funded Blake Masters and J.D. Vance in the primary. He seems to be out of the campaign funding business for the time <laughs> being, which which I actually think J.D.'s going to be OK in Ohio because mm-hmm. Ohio is a, a good state. But Arizona is a, a dicier proposition. Purple state. Mark Kelly's got a ton of money in the bank. I mean, we're being outspent in most places, but Arizona's a right. big one. I, the, and, then, and then there was, uh, since we last met, there was a poll in Colorado. Kevin Joe Day was in a dead heat mm-hmm. uh, with Senator Bennett out there. There was even a survey showing uh, Smiley within the spitting distance of Murray and Washington state. And I guess what we're really waiting for is to see. Uh, which Republican gets the nomination in New Hampshire to find out whether we're going to be competitive there. If, if somehow the Senate president there, Morse, gets the nomination in New Hampshire, it strikes me uh, that you'll have Democrat incumbent senators on the run in New Hampshire, Georgia, Nevada, Colorado. I mean, you know, even even with all the political press explaining to us how it's it's uh, it's the salad days for Democrats, you can easily see how Republicans could pick up at least one, right. one, a net one in that map, you know? And, and in every one of these cases where everybody wants to talk about how the Republican is being outraised and outspent by the Democrat, then every week the Senate Leadership Fund, uh, you know, the Mitch McConnell-aligned super PAC is coming in with big, big bucks. They're making big ad buys all over the country, and uh, it's, it's going to start to make a difference. They're playing in all these states, and usually that's a marker. When they start playing in a state, you can tell uh, – where these folks think it's going. Um, and, and there's a lot of competitive states on the board. I'll just add just, one last thing on, on Pennsylvania. We've talked a lot about candidates from the Republican side. Um, uh, I was texting with somebody this morning who said, if Fetterman loses, the the Democrats will regret not uh, putting Connor Lamb mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. for that seat. Uh, congressional Democrat, Marine, a little bit more moderate, but was many months ago on this podcast, we talked about him hampering Democrats for not talking enough about inflation, talking about the real issues. Uh, younger, you know, fit, you know, <laughs> for, for, you know to, to sort of talk about the, the health conversation. If, if Fetterman loses, I think Democrats will regret not putting Connor Lamb up for that Senate seat. All right, let's, uh, let's have one last topic on this week's edition of Flower Country with Scott Jennings. Donald Trump got a little bit of a victory in court over the uh, ongoing saga of the papers. He's been storing at Mar-a-Lago. The judge down there, federal judge, uh, granted the Trump lawyer's request for a special master to review the documents and give uh, former President Trump a little bit, uh, another layer of, of review 
over this. He remains, I guess, under some kind of investigation from the Department of Justice about the handling of these materials. What was the reason I wanted to, to bring this topic up was not not because any of us are lawyers and have anything <laughs> insightful to say about the legal piece of this. But what, what I was most interested in was after the judge made the ruling, the entirety of legal Twitter and the, the legal punditry class and the political legal you know, people that, that rush to the televisions whenever there's a, a legal matter, the entirety of them went nuts on this federal judge, <laughs> right. openly attacked. One, uh, one person uh, uh, wrote, this will do lasting damage <laughs> to the judiciary. And like this, this um, I mean, it's not unlike Biden, right? Mm-hmm. When one little thing doesn't go your way and you immediately go to the extreme apoplectic apocalyptic description of what just happened. It, it just makes me call into question all of your analysis. I mean, can you not have a measured response to anything? They were all very quick to point out that the president who appointed her was Donald Trump, as if, you know, that she can't be impartial on an issue just because of the president who appointed her. There were people saying that, like, every single judge that he appointed should resign right. as a result <laughs> right. of, of, of this ruling. I mean, it was bonkers. But, I, but I've got I've got three big thoughts on this. First, special yeah. master is an awesome title. Oh, yeah. Someone someone start calling me special it's, master. I don't know how I get that job, but I like it. Two, you need to talk to your wife. <laughs> uh, two... I think today Attorney General Bill Barr came out and, and had a similar opinion. He thought the special master was a bad call, and he, he thought said that he hopes that the Justice Department appeals the ruling. And, you know, I like Bill Barr. I think he's a really smart guy. Um, you know, I give a lot of credence to his opinion. And, and number three, the longer this drags on – and appointing a special master will only make this drag on longer – it is exactly what both Donald Trump – and Joe Biden want. I think both of them are loving the show. They're loving the TV. They're both getting what they want out of it. You know, Biden gets to talk about the threat to democracy and talk about how orange man bad. And Donald Trump gets to keep saying how he's attacked by the institutions and the institutional media. He gets to keep, you know, playing that card. I think the longer this goes on, it serves both of their interests and we just can't move on to anything else. Yeah, Kevin, I think you nailed it. Scott, you've sort of talked about this, that when the D- as soon as the DOJ, you know, kicked in the door at, at Mar-a-Lago, hypothetically speaking, <laughs> uh, they, they needed to have this thing airtight. And all these little bumps in the road are making it seem less airtight, making it seem like they didn't know what they were doing. It sort of draws in the question. It plays right into Trump's hand. I think he is loving this. And, I mean, could they have given him a better title than special? I mean, it's just – it's like something yeah. out of a cartoon. It's it's just ridiculous. It is interesting about these documents. You know, when this first broke, there was an immediate leak, I'm assuming, speculating that it was from the Justice Department to the Washington Post, that it was nuclear secrets. Trump was hiding nuclear secrets. And then there was a whole – round of speculation what's he doing with our nuclears is he selling them is he you know doing things with them and now the latest leak again i'll speculate from the department of justice is that it was a memo describing the nuclear capabilities of another country which is a lot different than the way it was positioned before and the whole time i am reading these leaks and reading about what's supposedly in these documents i'm thinking not a single person knew anything about this until the Department of Justice raided Donald Trump's house and then leaked the contents of the documents to the media. So how 
how how big of a deal is this if when the Department of Justice went and recovered these documents, the first idea someone had is, let's call the Washington Post. I mean, I don't know. Shrug, and and don't, take, take mean, a picture and tweet it out of the file folders scattered across the floor. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to excuse Donald Trump's record-keeping practices here. I mean, obviously, he threw a bunch of crap in a box <laughs> with, you know, that it's like, here's the top secret stuff. Here's magazines that I read. You know, I mean, yeah. it, you, know, it, it, like, you, you should be better than that. But at the same time, I do think it's hard to go out and tell the country how huge of a deal this is and how secret all this is when you do have somebody, obviously, somewhere in the process who has an extreme willingness to leak a great deal about it to the national media. You're listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Let's wrap it up this week, guys. Seen, read, heard. Kevin Grout. Yeah, I've started, your mind? I started listening to a, a new book. It's called Horse by Geraldine Brooks. It was recommended to me by my wife's grandfather, so thanks for that recommendation. Uh, and it is it traces the history of some horse racing in Kentucky, both in the antebellum period and then um, brings it up to today a little bit more. Uh, a novel, very interesting so far. I'm about a quarter of the way through it. Horse, Geraldine Brooks. Recommend Jared so Crawford. far. Like uh, a horse, all right. Uh, I'll, I have two. One I'm going to maybe steal from Sean. Uh Chris Otts was on KET and had a great clip the other night. I didn't see it. Um, didn't you tweet it out? Oh, maybe I did. Uh, this is the first first media person, journalist, whatever, in Kentucky that I have seen push back on this idea that we are – the co- economy is on fire and things are booming. So that was a great little segment. So shout out to Sean for clipping that and tweeting that out. Uh, and then second, uh, Nate Hawkman had a piece in National Review called Yes, Defund the Police Actually Happened. There's been some pushback both from the right and the left that like what we all imagined or over the last two years, what we all saw, we actually imagined about defund the police. Like, no, 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 that didn't actually happen. That's not why crime rates are up. Yada, yada, yada. And no, they, it happened. Oh, yeah. And, and, and they <laughs> wrote a great piece in National Review calling out those who are sort of proponents of criminal justice reform should should reject these ideas. There, there are good parts or good things that we can reform and fix, but... Uh, sort of, if, if you're going to ally yourself with the defund the police movement, you need to to own up to the disaster that that was. And so, really good piece in National Review. Sean, I also have a book. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Dominic Pino, who writes for the National Review as well. Uh, he just published a book called Edmund Burke and the Perennial Battle. It's a series of quotes from Edmund Burke. It's a really uh, easy entry point into Edmund Burke uh, and his uh, political philosophy, which is anyone knows me is like I nerd out on that crap uh, and so highly recommend that people go, get this it's it's a really uh, cheap buy on Amazon it's under 10 bucks and you can find it there I've also been uh, uh, doing some engaging in some similar academic pursuits I watched the first episode of She-Hulk on Disney Plus <laughs> attorney at law Attorney of Law, yes. And so uh, uh, on my plane ride up to New York City today, I, I watched that and had been looking forward to it. And I was, I was, um, is it good? I, I mean, mean, I was, tra- I, I, I was I, trapped on a plane. I, I mean, I, was <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, 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 what'd you guys think? Have you, have you seen it? I, I have not watched I've it. only watched the trailer and it looks a little hokey. I'm a little nervous about it. I saw the clip of Megan the Stallion. That's, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I watched the first episode. It was okay. I, I my advice. You know, give give the first episode. They had the regular Hulk in the first episode, yeah. and so uh, and so basically there were two Hulks uh, for the price of uh, one Hulk. So anyway, it, uh, it, it you know I'm, so I've been I've been looking at that. The other thing I've been 
watching today a little preview of Kentucky's governor's race in 2023. We had a new entrant into the race today. Former United Nations Ambassador Kelly Kraft uh, launched her candidacy with a, a couple of minutes video. Daniel Cameron, the state attorney general, uh, who's been on the pod before, um, uh, had a rebuttal video. Uh, Ryan Quarles, the ag commissioner, is still running around out there. So uh, at this point, it strikes me that the battle for Kentucky governor in 2023 is fully joined on the Republican side now that Kraft is in the race. And it reminded me, watching all this unfold today, that I want to extend from the pod an invitation to all of the gubernatorial candidates uh, to come on and let's have an interview and uh, and talk to them about their campaigns and give them a chance to to make their case. We have to do it right away, uh, Jared, but I think we ought to we ought to try to to have them all on. I also reached out this week to our old friend Mike Adams, Kentucky Secretary of State, who's launched his reelection campaign, and I'd like to uh, have him on the pod as well because he's been in the news quite a bit lately. I was actually at a flea market last week, the Fleur de Lee or Fleur de Flea. I'm not sure. What, anyway, my wife, my wife, my wife wanted to go. Anyway, I was rifling through somebody's junk. They had a vent. They had a, an original vintage uh, pair of Nixon Agnew cufflinks. Cool. From the from the inaugural committee. So wow. it was like the Nixon Agnew. It's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, I, we used I to be such a great for, country. We don't make that <laughs> stuff anymore. Yeah. But anyway, I snagged those from my old buddy, Mike, who yeah. I've, uh, was, as, as you may know, was my colleague. We've known each other for many years because he's like a Nixon Agnew uh, memorabilia collector. Anyway, then it reminded me, I want to have Mike on the pod. So we're going we're gonna to get that done as well. So with that, gentlemen, any final thoughts? Are we ready to get out of here for the night? Great job, everybody. <laughs> Great job. We, we got through the show without Joe Arnold, and, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get Joe back next week. And uh, – and the group will be back together. I'm going to head. I'm going to wrap up the pod. I'm going to head over to CNN here in New York City and do a little Don Lemon CNN tonight. So, with that, on behalf of Jared, Kevin, and Sean, I'm Scott Jennings. Thanks for listening to and subscribing to and giving five stars to and telling your friends about Flyover Country. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America. Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm-hmm.